everybody, it's Drags, episode 11 of Jungle Roar, a Cincy football podcast this week. is truly a special one for me. It's Ring of Honor week for the Bengals, and there's no one in Houday Nation more qualified to speak to the greatness of the four charter members going up on the east facade of Paul Brown Stadium Thursday night before a national television audience than my guest, Dave Lapham. Lap, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for the invitation and the opportunity. So you played for Paul Brown in 74 and 75, played with and protected Ken Anderson from 74 through 83, played alongside Hall of Famer Anthony Munoz, and you were also a teammate of the great Rattler, Ken Riley. Here's what I want to do, Lap. I want to get maybe one or two stories uh, from, from you on each inductee and why they were special to you. And I'm going to start with Paul Brown. Obviously, he's the one who drafted you in 74 and made you a Cincinnati Bengal. You started for him in his final season in 1975 at right guard. What made Paul Brown to you one of the greats in the game? I think it was his ability to evaluate people, um, not only players, but coaches, anybody in his organization. I mean, he had tremendous ability to um, (laughs) sort out talent and let them do their job and not interfere with them doing their job. And if they didn't do their job, he wasn't hesitant about replacing them. But he trusted his instincts with people. You know, an example is Booby Clark, for example, at uh, Bethune-Cookman. I was playing tight end. And Paul Brown saw him and said, that's my fullback. You know, he wanted the big bodied fullback like the Marion Motley type. And yeah. I mean, so from a personnel standpoint, he had a vision. Um, and from a coaching evaluation standpoint, he had a vision as well. And his coaching tree kind of speaks for itself. There's no doubt about it. Um, so he could, he could identify talent and, and uh, utilize that talent. I think he would have been a success in anything you get into. If he decided to get into business, he would have been president, CEO, whatever. If he got into politics, he probably would have been president of the United States. He just had that type of ability, I think, uh, to lead and to identify leaders. He was, he was very, very talented. There's no question. Was it? I get got this question a lot from players asking me uh, about Bill Belichick. For you know, I covered him for the last twenty eight years, and they're, they they would ask me how do players not get intimidated by Bill Belichick? And I, I often found that fascinating. And I'm going to ask you the same question: How were you or were you intimidated by? the one and only Paul Brown, when, when he drafted you uh, toward the end of his career and he had already established the greatness uh, of his career, how were you not intimidated when you came to Cincinnati in 74? I, it, there was a, uh, I, I guess, high, high respect. I don't know if been intimidated necessarily. Um, I guess I, I guess maybe in, its, in, in the form, I guess, intimidation. I, I just think that all of his accomplishments. I mean, I read about everything he had done and I just was like in awe of him, honestly. I mean, I, I played for Ben Schwartzwalder at Syracuse mm-hmm. who was a legendary coach there. He had 25 consecutive non-losing seasons, won a national championship. And he and Paul Brown were very close friends and got drafted by the Cincinnati Bengals and Paul Brown. And then, you know, I'm, I'm in a, 
in a meeting room with Ben Schwartzwalder conducting the meeting with the football team. And then the next year, I'm Paul Brown is standing up there while I'm in a training camp. I'm like, man, this is just, it's incredible. So I think, I think being around a guy that was almost larger than life at the college level prepared me a little bit for it. But Paul Brown overall was a, uh, (laughs) even though he wasn't big in stature, he carried a big stick. I mean, everybody on the, every player knew the power that he had in the National Football League. And Paul would say, I'll not only cut you, I'll make sure you never play in the National Football League again. And players would be like, he can do that. <laughs> you know, he knows a lot of people. He's, he's a powerful figure in the National Football League. Right. So he would, he would, you know, intimidate with, you know, statements like that and, and that sort of thing. But um, I respected, highly respected his intelligence. I mean, he was just, he was just unbelievably intelligent, but he would get up there with his legal pad and his Ben Franklin glasses in front of the, a room full of, you know, big athletes and would have all the mistakes, you know, and he'd single a guy out and just tear you to shreds in very few words. He was a master of that. It didn't take him very many words to just cut you to the quick. And they were grown men. I'm talking about grown men now in that meeting wearing T-shirts that had armpits down to their waist just fearing, you know, being singled yes. out by Paul Brown. And Paul was a master of uh, utilizing peer pressure to his advantage. There's no question about it. Is it the teacher? Because Belichick would always talk about this. The teaching aspect of his coaching is really what remains with us today. The, the way he broke everything down and taught the game of football to his players. Would, would you say that was his, his greatest contribution? I think that... Um, he basically, that's what he said a football coach is. A football coach is a teacher. Um, and he had great respect for some of the teachers that, that he had as he went through his education. So I, I think that is. And, and I think some of the, and all the things, little things like, you know, team meetings, uh, staying in a hotel, even with, in a home game, and get, gathering together in a hotel uh, to, to, to basically have more, sessions as a team and teach more um you know film breaking down film all the little things that you think about paul brown was the first to do it not just the face mask where you know he yes. invented the mask. I mean, that's the obvious thing but all the things that he did that like bill belichick will say i've heard bill belichick talk about it he said all, a lot of the things that i do as a coach with the new england patriots today paul brown started doing in the 50s and it's, it's just carried all the way through. And that's that's a visionary. There's no question about that. We're going to move on uh, to Anthony Munoz, the only uh, Bengals player uh, who wound up in, or so far has uh, wound up in Canton in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And of all of the great stories of Anthony Munoz, to me, some of the stories off the field, how he helps still here in the community in Cincinnati, Paul Daner of The Athletic uh, recently had a, a sensational story on his uh, contributions to the community and how he's helping out the youth become more educated and get more opportunities. That's what sticks out to me. What was it like being a teammate of Anthony Munoz coming out of USC when he did, I believe it was in 1980? Well, just from a football uh, part of it, when he was drafted and came to Spinney Field where we used to practice, he had, he had a big head of hair, like a big Afro type hair. Right. And this guy was gigantic. I mean, he was a lot bigger coming out of USC. He, he trained, he 
transformed his body a little bit, but he was massive. And he would, you know, stand in a doorway and you wouldn't see any light around it. You know, I mean, he just filled it. And it, I'm like, this guy is the biggest human being. And then we went out in the field and he was moving around like 185 pound defensive back. His feet were so sweet and he changed direction so fluidly and so easily. He bended his knees, super athletic. I mean, that's the thing about Anthony Munoz is I've said it many times and I mean it. I, I, he's the best athlete over 250 pounds I think I've seen. You know, I mean, it's just, just incredibly gifted. He was a relief pitcher third base on our national championship baseball team at USC. I mean, baseball was his first love. I, I know uh, he was telling me about when he was a youth playing baseball, Frank Pastore, the former Reds pitcher, yep. was pitching, and a bunch of scouts were there to see Frank Pastore, and Anthony took him deep twice. And they're like, who's the big Mexican kid, you know? And he was a heck of a baseball player. Um, but he, he just – he dominated – at the tackle position and he would finish blocks in pass protection and in the running game where he would literally pancake guys to the ground, just finish them. And I've uh, kidded before that, you know, international house of pancakes, IHOP, they lost a big opportunity for a lifelong partnership with Anthony Munoz because he was pancaking people left and right and equally effective pass protection, run blocking. I mean, he just, he set a standard that was, in my opinion, was, was so high and, uh, so that, that's as a player, but then as a, as a human being, as great a player as he was, he's even, you know, that much special, equally special or more as a human being. And, and uh, you know, guys were afraid, you know, didn't want to – if a guy cussed around Anthony Munoz, everybody immediately apologized. You know, he just he, – he was, he was a man of faith, and he uh, – that was, that was his whole life and still is, and he still uh, just – everything is about helping others and he wants to make the world a better place any way he possibly can. Just a gem of a human being. And I think, I think he's a, uh, he's, he's a community jewel. You know, he's one of those guys that, that uh, is going to do good things for the city of Cincinnati well beyond his playing days. We knew that when he was a player and it's, and it's, it's held true. Um, er, er, people around the country, I think look at Cincinnati in a better light when Anthony Munoz is out there representing the city like he does doing all the things he does around the country and the world. What was it like playing next to him? I mean, I believe it was uh, in 79 you moved to left guard. Is that right, Dave? Yes, it was It was uh, 80. But it was the 80 season, yes. Got it, 80, 1980, and that would be right when uh, Anthony Munoz came into the National Football League, and, and he was the left tackle right away you knew that right i mean he oh, had that, that that kind of talent oh yeah i mean it was it was like okay well everybody has to earn a position and anthony you have to earn a position left tackle here in that position you know pretty right away i mean there wasn't any ever any debate or, or any uh any battle and we we just basically called him the eraser because he would eliminate the guy that he was working against and jim mcnally would would do it you know jim mcnally would put matchups up on the board with everybody, you know, you're going to be blocking this guy and maybe in the nickel, you'll be blocking this guy. And sometimes there'd be two or three people you might have to block during the course of a game, depending on, you know, if it was the down lineman, a linebacker, what position you played and all that sort of thing. But anybody that was in front of Anthony Munoz, as soon as everybody's matchups went up on the board, he just literally take an eraser and erase Munoz, the guy that he was blocking, you know, the people that he was blocking because didn't you don't have, have to, to worry, worry about him. him. Yeah. Didn't have to worry about helping him. It's like, how do we figure out how to block the other people? This one's all taken care of. Uh, yeah, he was he was a unique uh, unique football player. There's no question about it. I mean, I, I heard 
I heard defensive linemen make some guttural noises during the course of a, a game when Anthony Munoz, you know, caught him just perfectly and took him to the turf boy. He, he'd take the, he'd take the air and the life out of him. Quick aside, Jim McNally, obviously, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time around Dante Scarnecchia, but before Dante, uh, Jim McNally, I think one of the greatest offensive line coaches in the history of the league. You agree? I know you're biased, but uh, what make, what made him that way? Uh, I, I think he was the guru. I, there's no question. He was always trying to improve and perfect techniques. I mean, he was just possessed by it. And he just attention to detail and the workload that he would take on. I mean, this is before, you know, computerized things and analytics and all this, he would literally break down tape and chart a defensive lineman's move that he did every single play and then compute percentages of it. And it was unbelievable how much information he would give you in preparation for a game. And there's no, I think we felt as an offensive line that the opponent could do nothing that we hadn't talked about. Right. You know, even, even if they hadn't shown it on tape, they could end up doing this. And this is what we're going to do if they do that. I mean, he had everything covered and, you know, it was repetition, repetition, repetition. We, we did the same footwork drills and every kind of drill before practice, we'd go out there a half an hour early and do them every single day. From the first day of training camp, the year we went to the Super Bowl, till our final Friday practice before Super Bowl 16 on that Sunday, every single day. We could do them in our sleep, and that's what he wanted, you know. And um, he was just – he was something else, boy. He was a he, – he worked hard, and uh, but he worked smart, you know, and, and I think players really appreciated him. And he really developed linemen, and that's what Dante does or has done, you know, develop so many linemen that when you get – when you have the opportunity to work with guys like that, you have to feel blessed. Move on uh, to the third member going up on the uh, East facade on Thursday night, the Bengals and Jaguars on Thursday night football. It's ring of honor night. Uh, something that I think a lot of ben Bengal fans have, have said, it's been a long time coming. Well, it arrives on Thursday night. The third uh, member that I want to speak to is I'm biased. I grew up here in Cincinnati. I went to Indian Hill the most accurate passer in the National Football League ever is Ken Anderson. And that's what stuck out to me. And I'll tell you, Lap, people, you know, obviously talk about the Bill Walsh, uh, Ohio River offense, if you will, uh, when uh, Ken was starting or actually, you know, midway through Ken's first generation, Ken Anderson 1.0. He went right. through a different uh, iteration later in his career, his MVP year in 1981, you recall, Lindy Infante. Uh, and Kenny Anderson speaks of Lindy Infante just as warmly as he does Bill Walsh. And absolutely. And, and the thing is, he won back-to-back -back passing titles with both of those guys in different decades. He did it with Bill Walsh in the 70s. He did it with Lindy Infante in the 80s the only quarterback to ever do that, to win back-to-back -back passing titles. He won four, and he did it back-to-back -back in two separate decades. On that premise alone, he belongs that's in Hall Canton. of Fame worthy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Hall of Fame worthy. And I remember doing camps with him. We do, we do football camps in Connecticut when we were players, and uh, I was fortunate enough to room with Ken Anderson for you know a bunch of years. And we, we would go to this camp, and then he, he would – 
do his thing. And then he'd say, okay, let's throw for a little bit. And we'd get 25 yards apart and he'd just, he'd stand there. He goes right shoulder, boom, right there. Belt buckle, left shoulder. I mean, it was like pinpoint. It's like the ball place was unbelievable. And he could do that over and over and over again. And I agree with you. I mean, his, his sport in high school, he went to high school with Dan Issel. They both played high school That's basketball right, yeah. together. And Ken Anderson got a, an opportunity at Augustana initially to play basketball. And they asked him to come out for the football team, you know, and he's like, okay. <laughs> it's an unbelievable story. And because uh, he had played some football in high school as well. Just a very, very gifted athlete. He could really run. I mean, the year we went uh, to Super Bowl 16 in 1981, he was the second leading rusher on the football team. Pete Johnson, I did not number know one. That. He was number two. Charlie Alexander was number three. We'd run naked bootlegs, and Kenny there would tuck his butt for a bunch of yards. Uh, unbelievable. So, yeah, he, he, uh, you know what his average was, Lap? Not to interrupt you, but you know what his average per run was that year in 81? I bet it was over six yards of carry. It was 7.0. 46 okay. rushes, 320 yards, and he had a rushing touchdown. He had a long run of 25 yards in that 1981 MVP season. He literally yep. uh, could do it all. I will tell you that I think his best game because of the conditions was the freezer bowl. And the fact that, you know, he was so accurate, but he was so detailed in his, like you just mentioned, uh, very articulately, uh, he worked on being accurate. He worked on mechanics. And that's why in that air that, you know, in that weather that Dan Fouts struggled so badly in that day and Fouts to this day admires Ken Anderson for being able to throw in that weather, his ability to throw in that weather and lead the offense that day um, to me stands as his greatest game. I agree with you. And, and I think, and Kenny will tell you, you know, Kenny's maybe the most humble star I've ever met, but he will tell you. And, and some of it's, you know, there's facts there. He grew up in Batavia, Illinois. He was used to that kind of weather. Dan Fouts grew up on the West Coast, played on the West Coast. You know, Kenny Anderson's hand is very large. It's good sized. It's, it's, it's a big hand for his body type. Dan Fouts, opposite, not a very big hand. Dan Fouts was having trouble controlling the football. Kenny Anderson was controlling the football that day a lot better than than Dan Fouts was. And and the fact is, even in those kind of conditions, he could spin it. You know, I mean Dan, Dan was throwing ethos balls, flutter balls, you know, knuckle balls. Kenny was getting rotation and spin on the football, even in those conditions. I mean, remarkable. The throw to to ML Harris for the touchdown was unbelievable. It was a I wouldn't say a bullet, certainly, but it was it was so smooth and so accurate. Um, it, it was right on the money and there was no, no wobble to it. <laughs> no, uh, and, and, and in those conditions and the reason that it was the coldest, one of the coldest games in NFL history, it was minus nine raw temperature, but 59 below because of the wind. And he was, he'd have to cut, he was cutting the wind because of that tight, pretty tight spiral. Faust's ball was getting knocked around. I mean, it was, it was floating backwards and, and Kenny's was cutting that wind. And he, it was just a remarkable performance. I mean, you know, under adverse conditions, to say the least, he had an unbelievable performance. Unbelievable. How much do you think Bill Walsh impacted him? A ton. A ton. You know, Kenny said that, uh, you know, I, I've, I've talked to him about this. I said, you know, what if you had been drafted by 
Atlanta, for example, and you had Van Brocklin and whoever the general manager was, uh, and Van Brocklin was coaching you, yes. as opposed to having, you know, uh, Paul Brown and Bill Walsh. <laughs> it, it, sometimes the luck of the draw you know, m- makes a huge factor in a, in a guy's career and his early development. And Bill Walsh, I, Kenny, Kenny would practice two weeks before, you know, at the beginning of every season after a little bit of off-season conditioning and never throw a football. It was all footwork for two weeks, just working on different things for different uh, protections and, and rollouts and all, all, all footwork, and then get in a throwing position but not throw the football. And then he would build, you know, they'd start to throw this pass, throw that, just build, build, build. And, uh, I mean, Kenny credits a lot of his accuracy because of his mechanics. Bill, Bill is a stickler on mechanics. And uh, Kenny credits, you know, a lot of that to, to Bill Walsh. And then, you know, he had a fertile mind. I mean, his he was an offensive genius. There's no question about it. And uh, I, Kenny will tell you that uh, that he was very, very fortunate to have Bill Walsh molding him in his early days, for sure. As a Cincinnati kid growing up, as I mentioned, um, obviously the 81 and 88 teams are uh, teams that stick out as great teams. My favorite team, however, was the 75 Bengals for many different reasons. Uh, not the least of which is the way Ken Anderson played that year. Uh, but all the personalities on that team, the defense was spectacular. And I remember sitting around wondering um, if the Bengals were going to come back in that playoff game against the Oakland Raiders. And it was 31-14. And I remember Anderson, Kenny, um, being able to march the field, down, uh, march the team down the field a couple of times, get within 31-28. You had the sense that day that they were, you guys were going to come back and win that game. I did, and uh, we had a couple of we had a situation at the end of the game trying to come back to take a lead and or at least kick a field goal to tie it. We had a protection issue where we had Booby Clark on Ted Hendricks, and it was you know back on linebacker. After that game, came up with slide protection. Slide the offensive lineman out there, have the lineman keep it big on big because back-to-back pass plays, Ted Hendricks got sacks off of Booby Clark, and you really can't fault Booby. It was a mismatch, and, I mean, Ted Hendricks was – Matt Stork was a great pass rusher. I mean, he was a handful of snoofles for anybody, but that matchup uh, ended up being a big factor down the stretch of that football game, and uh, because of that, you know, created another another pass protection you know, in our offense. So that, that was kind of interesting, but yeah, I mean, Kenny Anderson was, uh, I mean, a- after that football game, you know, uh, Gene Upshaw, Art Shell, all those guys were like, whoa, man, that day, you, you got a quarterback there, man. You got a quarterback. We're like, yeah, we know, we know you guys do too. It was a, it was a great football game, but I agree with you. I mean, Kenny Anderson throwing a football is like art, you know, and, and the, the, the book that he, he was, a contributor in the art of quarterbacking. It's a, it's a must read. I mean, Jack Clary, you know, was the author and, and Ken yep. Anderson obviously was the, was the, uh, the big, the big participant in the thing. And I mean, it just, it's, it's like a must read for all quarterbacks. I think it's an unbelievable piece of work. I spent many a Saturday afternoon lap at Boston college games, talking Bengals with Jack Clary. And there you and, go. And, and he wrote, you know, obviously the uh, PB story, that's a, a must read for anybody as well. And he would always talk about the old man and he would see me come and he'd, he'd bring me, an, uh, he actually brought me a souvenir football from the 81 uh, Super Bowl team. 
And uh, yeah, I, I have a very fond memories of one Jack Clary. Uh, the other thing I would mention about uh, Kenny Anderson, I always bring up this clip uh, from an NFL film. So it was about the 75 Steelers. It was, um, you know, one of their documentaries, uh, uh, whatever it's called. I can't remember it right now. A football life um, uh, on right. America's game. Sorry. America's game, the 75 Steelers. And there's a line okay. in there from Dwight White about um, Mad Dog, about Ken Anderson. They could never get to him because as soon as they got the rush, Ken Anderson knew where his release was all the time. It was like clockwork. Well, the, the interesting thing is after a, a, a bruising contest with the Pittsburgh Steelers, Bradshaw, Joe Green, all those guys invited Kenny into their locker room to go into the sauna and have some beers with those guys. And he, he accepted and he almost missed the bus. I mean, it was close. He almost missed the bus, but he said, how do you turn down an invitation, you know, from, from all those guys, you know, to join him in the locker room. And, and he said, I couldn't believe it. I'm in the sauna with those guys drinking beer with the Steelers. He, I said, well, that's, that's just respect, man. That's, that's like, they can't pay you a higher tribute. That's unbelievable. Yeah, that's a great story. I'd never heard that one before. That is an awesome story, Dave. Speaking with Dave Lapham, the now in his 36th year, is that right, Dave? You started in 86 with the Bengals radio network? Yes, I did. That's, it's, uh, it's crazy, but that's, uh, that's a fact. That's, it is. That is amazing. Well, we cannot uh, do this, obviously, without talking about the fourth and final member. Uh, again, look, we're biased. Lap, both of us are biased. But the Rattler, Ken Riley belongs in Canton, 65 career interceptions. Uh, and he had impacts on that secondary, uh, that were long ranging, uh, really made everybody a better player. Uh, and in many ways, like Anthony Munoz and, and correct me if I'm wrong, or I've got the perspective here wrong. He made everybody around him better and made you feel like a great teammate. No question. I mean, that Kenny Riley, when I was a rookie, may have been the veteran player that made me feel the most comfortable. I mean, he would all, he would always, after every practice, young buck, how's it going? What'd you learn today? I mean, just an unbelievable guy, you know, and, and you talk to Chris Collinsworth, you talk to Isaac Curtis, you talk to all these receivers. He was like another coach, you know, he'd say, Hey, you know, you, you, you tipped, you tipped that route, you know, don't, don't do this. Don't, you know, don't do this with your hips. Don't do this with your feet. You're, you're tipping. I, I, I know what you're doing. He was, he was unbelievable. And he, and he would always offer things up, always trying to, you know, make everybody on the team better as, as good as they could be. And you, you look at this guy who's a quarterback at Florida A&M never played, you know, in the, in the secondary before, and then comes in the NFL and does what he did 65 interceptions, still, still an incredible number in the era he played. If you threw it 20 times in a game, that was a ton. So he had, in terms of opportunities, he had far fewer opportunities to make the interceptions, but his hands were so good. I mean, he was such an athletic guy. I don't, if he dropped one, it was like, holy crap, can he drop the football? I mean, he, every time he got his hands on a ball, he caught the son of a gun. It was just, he was just remarkable that, you know, I do think playing quarterback, he did have an understanding of, you know, he saw, he saw the secondary play through the eyes of a quarterback. So he understood route combinations, uh, leverage on route on, on coverages. And he understood a lot of that stuff. He was a very, very intelligent football player and uh, would impart that knowledge on his, to his teammates. And again, just a, an unbelievably special human being. I, I've never heard anybody say anything negative 
about these guys. You know, Kenny Riley, Anthony Munoz, Ken, there's nobody says anything negative about these guys. And that's, that's a tribute to not only the great players they are, but the great human beings they are. They were uh, great, great leaders. And, um, and I think most people know this by now, but Mel Blunt says, you take one look at the tape and the career of Ken Riley and the man belongs in Canton. That's good enough for me. And if it's coming from Mel Blunt, who had a, obviously played, you know, didn't play directly against him. He was uh, a great uh, Pro Bowl, all, all pro uh, corner himself, uh, someone who is in Canton. Uh, when you hear that kind of praise from a great defender, um, I think it, it carries a lot more weight. I agree. And, and I know all the wide receivers that Ken Raleigh, when they were in airborne, he'd take their legs and feet out from under and they'd do a backflip and land on their heads or their shoulders. And that was an intimidating play. And Kenny, he, he didn't do it to intimidate. He did it to, well, I guess he did, you know, to, to let them feel him, I guess, a little bit. Well, I mean, he did it all the time to Lynn Swan. And, oh. and, and, oh. and Lynn Swan, he was... Players, especially the Raiders, obviously, like to intimidate him. But I think right. with Ken Riley, like you said, he did it more out of technique. You're not going to make a big play on me. Right. And and it's like what I'm going to make you do is next time you're trying to high point a ball by jumping, you know, three feet off the ground. Think about it, because if you, you might hear me in the vicinity and think about not doing that because, you know, you're going to land on your head or your shoulder and. He, he knocked some people woozy. There's no question about it. And if they landed wrong in the shoulder, you know, there could be some damage to that shoulder. I mean, totally legal play, but he just, uh, he, he was, he was phenomenal at it. And, and that's the other thing. He wasn't bashful about tackling and he was just a, just a really great football player. And again, I, uh, just a, just a guy that we lost him way too soon. Way I too mean, soon. Uh, it's just that, that one, when, when I heard about that one, that, that just uh, that that grabbed me really hard. I mean, that that shook me up because every time he was one of those kind of guys, we, we might not see each other for like 15 years. And then as soon as we see each other, man, it's like a big smile hugging, you know, how's it? It's like you just saw him yesterday. It's just one of those kind of guys that just lights up. He just lights you up and he lights up. He's he's special. Yeah. You're looking forward to seeing and, and catching up with his son, Ken Jr. Ken the third, excuse me. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I think uh, the apple didn't fall far from the tree there. He's cut from the same cloth. You know, a great, uh, great kid. Extremely proud of his dad, you know, and rightfully so. And, uh, and, you know, the other thing about all these people, you know, Mike, that's, that's special to me is uh, Paul Brown would always tell us at training camp, men, this is a very, very small portion of your life. This is a bridge. You're very fortunate to be able to have an opportunity to do this, be, you're going to have to find your life's work when we're done here, because this isn't going to go on forever. You know, if you're lucky, you may play seven, 10 years. You're still going to be a young man when you're done playing football. I want you to go make something of your life. And he was always very, very interested in how guys turned out, what they ended up doing. And he would be so proud of every single one of these inductees going into the in, you know, into the ring of honor because every single one of them, you know, matched almost their, their professional football career matched or surpassed in what they did when they were done playing. And that would have been a big, big deal to Paul Brown if he were alive to see it. 
I will tell you another reason that I love that 75 uh, Bengals team was the secondary, because I believe that that secondary was as good as any in the National Football League, because you have obviously had Ken Riley, you had Leap yep. Lamar, Lamar Parrish, yep. you had Tommy Casanova, and you had Bernard Jackson, right? Yep. Who am I forgetting? Can you think of any of those four? There's somebody else maybe in the secondary that I'm that I'm omitting. Those, I, those, those, those were the big those were the big four. There's no question. Um, Lyle Blackwood is yes. a guy that you know was was big in special teams and a big hitter on the back end. He'd intimidate guys. You know, in the secondary with that big hitting uh, ability of his, he was uh, he was he was a good player. But you're you're right. I mean, uh, Tommy Casanova, he's oh. just a, another guy. I mean, <laughs> Paul Brown would be proud of him. Are you kidding me, uh, Doctor? What, with his political career. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. After, that's right. He he was a doctor, playing. right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's a yeah. He was a he was an ophthalmologist, an eye surgeon. That's right. Um, and he would he would. <laughs> Do, do that kind of work. And then he also got into the political arena with, you know, he's a Senator down there for, for a bunch of years. I mean, these guys, Paul Brown, intelligence was always a big, big factor in his evaluation. Yep. And he, he, you know, he felt comfortable like most coaches do. You trust smart players, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things that uh, Paul Brown would, would, would talk about want to surround myself with as much as te- intelligence as I can to put out in the football field. I feel much better about that. And he was, uh, that was a big, big deal. That was a tiebreaker, maybe even more than a tiebreaker for him. Well, let's move on to the current day Bengals. A lot to talk about, and we'll keep it short. Uh, but I want to get your perspective because nobody has better perspective and didn't have be- any better perspective than you had on Sunday at Heinz Field of Jackson Carmen. That's the position you came up playing right guard in the National Football League in, in 1974, Dave. And uh, I, the growth just from my layperson's eyes of watching Jackson Carmen from OTAs to training camp when he struggled in the first two weeks, I thought with his footwork, his balance just didn't look right to now. To be able to start against the Steelers on the road in the third game of the year, that's pretty tremendous. It is. And I think Frank Pollock deserves a lot of credit. I think Jackson Carmen deserves a lot of credit because, you know, Frank hard coached them and Jackson realized he needed to be hard coached. You know, he took the coaching and, and he, he changed a lot of things. And I agree with you. I mean, he was almost too light on his feet and then he was on the ground a lot. You know, his balance just wasn't, wasn't there. It wasn't good enough. I think, and I think his head was swimming you know, for a little while, making the position change and a lot of things that go along with it. But uh, the, the the improvement is dramatic. And he's a very intelligent guy and a very intelligent football player. And watching him in that football game, you know, my, my feeling was, I remember my first NFL start. And I, I all I wanted to do was prove to my teammates and coaching staff that I belong. And watching him, he definitely belonged. I thought he acquitted himself very, very well. And I remember after my first uh, start, Paul Brown came up to my locker and he said, young man, I'm proud of you. The game wasn't too big for you. It was good to see out there. The game wasn't too big for you. I said, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. And that's, that's kind of what I thought watching uh, Jackson Carmen in his first NFL start, the game wasn't too big for him. And I think, uh, I think he's got a, a bright future. I think, you know, he's just still scratching the surface of what he can be. 
Well, it's interesting, Lap, because the first overall, well, the first round pick for the Bengals, Jamar Chase, a lot of people wondered about him in training camp as well. Look what he's done. He's only the 10th receiver in NFL history with at least one touchdown in his first three NFL games. And then you have what Jackson Carmen's been able to do and how he's been able to at least grow from training camp to the point now where, you know, if he plays well lap, he may be able to supplant um, Sula Filo at right guard. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Z- Sula Filo at right guard. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the thing, the thing that you want to do when you get your first NFL start, you don't want it to stop there. <laughs> so now it's like, all right, I've got a, I've got a foundation. I've got a game one on tape and now I'm going to try to get better and better and better. And, you know, is it going to be a situation where, I mean, Xavier Suofilo has got an MCL issue with his knee. It's, it's not, you know, a surgery type thing, but you strain an MCL, you know, obviously not going to play this week. That's a short week and all that. And I mean, if, if Jackson Carmen shows that he's capable of, uh, of getting the job done, he's a younger, stronger, more athletic, uh, version, you know, Xavier Suofilo, very intelligent. He knows where he's supposed to, to go and how he's supposed to get there. The question is, can he get there anymore? Whereas, you know, Jackson can get there, but he's got to make sure that he knows where to go and how he's supposed to get there. So that that's the that's what you you struggle with a little bit. But I think I think Jackson's very intelligent. I think all that's going to come to him quickly. I think his confidence uh, took a, a major major step forward. After this first game against the Pittsburgh Steelers, it was good to see. Now, I don't know if Tyler Boyd, he he is a tremendous receiver, and I love his personality. But what he said on Monday about the way the Steelers handled themselves, I don't know, Lap, it was a bit of a kind of an eerie, um, for me, a bit of a hesitant flashback to the uh, terrible towel incident, the great terrible towel incident back in 2005. uh, it's great to have confidence and Tyler Boyd exudes confidence. And it obviously it meant something to him being from Pittsburgh and going back there and having had so many rough losses. But what did you think of him coming out and saying, you know, the Steelers essentially quit on their final drive? Well, I, I know what Paul Brown would have said. <laughs> yes. Paul Brown, he would, he would just come out and say to us, do not say anything during the course of the week that could end up on the opponent's bulletin board don't do it don't do it be smarter than that don't let your emotions get the best of you you know and uh i mean tyler boyd i mean he he, he made ingram look silly ingram tried to take his knock him knock him back uh, out of the county that the stadium's in and tyler boyd just you know that's that's not going to be enough and shook that off and took it in for a touchdown one of that that kind of set the physicality tone in my mind yeah it did. it's like you, you got you got a wide receiver on an edge rush guy who's in the, you know zone blitz dropping the coverage and and the and the wide receiver wins on that contact they're ready to play get the big boy pads on here so yeah maybe I don't know maybe the the emotions obviously got the best of them um, it's a different era there's no doubt about it, it. is guys say saying two things that would never have uh, been kosher back in the day but um, I don't know. It's, We'll, we'll see the next time the Bengals and Steelers play if that somehow surfaces. And I think there's I a think strong it's going to. <laughs> Particularly with social media, it's going to surface big time. One more thing. And Isaac Curtis, uh, I, he, he's going to wind up 
on that east wall. There's no question about that. I don't think anybody who ever remembers Isaac Curtis is, is doubts that for one second, especially someone who played with him like you. That catch that Jamar Chase made uh, down the left sideline, fingertip, reminded me, I don't lap. You might remember this one. I believe it was at the end of the 82 strike shortened season down the right sideline of the Astrodome. And it was part of uh, Ken Anderson's uh, at that time, record breaking consecutive completion yep. string. He yep. throws a pass down the right sideline and Isaac Curtis with his, I believe it was his right hand reaches out and catches the ball just about as he, he's going to fall to the ground and, and hauls it in. That's what came to mind when I saw uh, Chase catch that ball because my press box seat was lined up perfectly with the pass and my jaw dropped when he held on to the ball. Yeah, and he caught it below his waist, you know. I mean, he caught the back half of the ball like below below his, uh, the midpoint of his body. And, you know, the thing, Mike, that impresses me with these guys that can make plays on these deep balls like that, I mean, Isaac Curtis was world-class speed. And, and he had tremendous hands. I mean, you know, sticky fingers. It was like, you know, this guy, man, fly paper hands with the speed to, to burn. That's just unbelievable. I mean, I, to me, he was as, as big a big play threat as anybody in the history of the National Football League. There's no question. The, when I watch him run, his head never moved. I watch Chase hmm. run, their heads don't move. If I tried to run, like, as fast as I could, I'd be like a bobblehead. You know, and then you can't track the ball because your eyes are up and down. And you can't right. track the ball. These guys have that still head, and they're flying, and they're tracking that football perfectly. And then to make a play like that, you talk about body control and eye-hand coordination. Oh, my God. That's, that's freakish stuff, man. It is. It's been really a lot of fun, Lap, uh, just going down memory lane. I, that's why I wanted to have you on this week of all weeks, because you could speak and give great perspective. And, and you certainly haven't disappointed on, on four great guys going uh, up on the wall. The first, uh, the charter class, if you will, of the uh, Bengals ring of honor that goes up uh, Thursday night uh, as the Bengals take on the Jacksonville Jaguars, hopefully lap uh, the Bengals don't sustain a letdown. I, I can't imagine they don't come out with a great deal of energy. What happened on Sunday, what's going to be happening Thursday night. You figure they're going to play with a great deal of energy, even on a shortened week, right? Yeah. I mean, the thing you fear is a letdown. Well, hopefully this type of thing, you know, players feed off the fans, fans feed off the players. Hopefully fans will feed off of the celebration of excellence, you know, with the ring of honor at halftime and the 81 Super Bowl team being yes. on the field before the game. There should be a lot of buzz, a lot of electricity, and, uh, you know, hopefully would, would help against any of those kind of letdowns. And, uh, and, and, and that's the thing, though. I mean, you, you got to move on. You have to compartmentalize. You stub your toe against uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars, who have lost 18 in a row. They won the opener last year and lost 15 straight. They've lost all three this year. One in 18. Man, that doesn't undo everything that you did positively in Pittsburgh. So you got to you gotta uh, just go out and execute and, and get a dub, man. Three and one would be big. Uh, by the way, I, I don't want to uh, wrap this up without asking you about 81. And we, are, we talked about it very briefly, the Freezer Bowl and whatnot. But um, are you, what are you going to be doing in terms of halftime and ca- or throughout the day, catching up with those guys or maybe the day before? Yeah, it's uh, gonna gonna catch up with uh, with some guys the day the day before. Um, I'm gonna do a, a radio show 
you know, at the Holy Grail. Kenny Anderson is going to join us for the first hour of the, our show uh, from uh, 6 to 8 on, on Wednesday over at the Holy Grail. And other guys, I think, will be stopping in. Uh, a bunch of guys are getting together at a hotel da- downtown from 7 to, I guess, whenever on Wednesday. <laughs> um, and then you know, the Icon Music uh, Theater, there's going to be, everybody's going to be going over there for a Q&A with season ticket holders and, and uh, getting together and, and, and talking old stories and old times and all that sort of thing. I don't know what I'm going to be able to do once the once the game starts. I don't know if I'm going to be able to be down on the field, you know, with the 81 team or not. Um, the, I, I, I just am not sure about that. There's probably a good chance that I won't be able to do that. But And then guys are staying around, uh, going out with a bunch of guys on Friday night to dinner, uh, guys that are staying in town. So it's going to be a it's going to be a fun week. Some I'll be seeing some guys that I haven't seen for a long time. Fortunately, uh, the city of Cincinnati is a great place to raise a family. A lot of guys did stay here after their playing career. But Amen. A bunch, a bunch of guys haven't as well. So to see those guys that uh, in some cases haven't seen for quite a while, man, it's going to be great. By the way, we didn't mention Forrest Gregg. Uh, obviously, the late great coach of that '81 team. And uh, I'm I just before we wrap up, lap your thoughts, your best memories of of Forrest Gregg, and and what you'll be thinking about on uh, Thursday night about your head coach that year. Yeah, I mean Forrest Gregg was unbelievably demanding there's no question he, he got the most out of everybody but uh you know we, we in my opinion I, I would look at him and particularly when he's up there at the podium and those big old ham hocks he had those hands and he'd have Super Bowl rings on his fingers and I'm looking at him and saying yeah he's asking a lot he's demanding but that guy played for Vince Lombardi he's not asking us to do anything he didn't do and look at those rings on his fingers that you know get our justification to everything he's talking about so he had instantaneous credibility with me and, you know, obviously a bunch of guys on that football team. And, and he was, he was tough, man. He, he really was, but um, it, it, he'd start to twitch. He had this, when, when he got upset, he'd start twitching. It looked like a rabbit, rabbit nose a little bit. And man, one, if you, if you saw Forrest Gregg twitching, you, you kept your distance, man. You didn't want to get anywhere near him. He was a man's man in every sense of the word. There was no politics. It wasn't like, I'm going to tell the media one thing and tell the players another. Uh-uh. <laughs> None of that stuff. Sometimes you didn't want to hear or like to hear what Forrest Gregg had to say to you collectively or individually, but there was always a reason for it, always a purpose for it. And I loved the guy because he put together the best football team I ever played on. So, you know, tough love, man, but it was, it was I loved the man. That's great. I, what a perfect way lap to wrap it all up i want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of the jungle roar podcast also want to thank the one and only dave lapham uh, you can hear him along with dan hort on the bengals radio network every single game and hopefully this year into the playoffs i think there is the possibility for that lap thanks so much thank you mike appreciate it you can download this episode wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts like Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Again, thanks to our great guest, Dave Lapham. For Dave Lapham, I'm Mike Petralia, and this has been the Jungle Roar Podcast.